For us to gain the apprehension of spiritual truth, it requires that the Holy Spirit is involved. And you know, if we speak uh, really energetically and enthusiastically, or barely above a whisper, if God's in it, we get it. Spiritual truth, or seeing Christ as He is, that's what we want. So, let me pray briefly and we'll get into the the message this morning. Father, we, we do know that truth is spiritually apprehended. And Father, we're dull. We are dull in our hearing, we're dull in our hearts, and we ask that by your Spirit you would reveal more of yourself to us this morning. Lord, thinking especially of the Lord's table we'll be celebrating later in the theme of this teaching. Lord, it's so simple on one hand and so profound on the other. And you mean to use it to help us see your great love for us. And I pray that's what we'd come away with this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you missed last week, we started a short series on worship. We talked about definition of terms last Sunday, what worship is and what it isn't. And that usually our thoughts, if we talk about worship, go to Sunday morning when we're here and we're singing. But that really, in the teaching of the Scripture, that version of worship is really a very, very small piece of the pie. That biblically we said, worship is coming before God intentionally, with our will, bowing before Him, physically, in a posture physically, but also spiritually that we are offering God all we are and all we have. And that a life characterized by worship is one characterized by obedience to God. That it is impossible to be a worshiper if we're living disobedient lives because one is not the other. Worship requires our wills in which we give ourselves to God. We started with the imagery of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're there in the fire, but they're not consumed. They were willing, in King Nebuchadnezzar's words, to offer their bodies to God rather than deny Yahweh. And then we saw Paul talking in Romans 12.1 about we, like them, were called to see our lives as a living sacrifice, that our life is like theirs. It's on the altar, in the fire, consumed fully and only for God. So that's the precursor to this morning's topic. We'll get to the Lord's table this morning. That's what we're talking about as an act of worship. We're going to front load by sort of previewing what led to the Lord's table historically and theologically, and that would be the Passover in Egypt. And by the way, this is sort of information heavy this morning. I want it to be more devotional in nature. The scripture talks about so much that in covering bases, you'll just have to hang in there, okay? So we'll be covering a lot of ground. If you were a Jew living in the spring of about 1441, 1443 B.C. or so, really exciting times. Jacob and his descendants, about 75 people, 400 years earlier, had come down from the land of promise and settled there in Egypt in the land of Goshen. You remember there was a famine, no food up there, so they'd come down. Joseph was there ruling in Egypt in the time, and these Jewish Uh, shepherds were going to be in a great place to do that. But 400 years has gone by. And those 75 people have turned into a couple million. And it's not that they're shepherds anymore. Their lifestyle has changed quite a bit because now, instead of this pastoral life of taking care of the sheep, they're slaves. 
And life is not good. Life is hard and it's cruel and it's bitter. And they're slaves building Pharaoh's cities and Pharaoh's monuments. And in fact, they're building idols to the gods of Egypt. So that's the setting when God brings in Moses. You remember Moses had been in Egypt. He was raised in Pharaoh's household. But then took a 40-year departure out in the wilderness, got married, and God appears to him and says, you're my man, I want you to go back and lead my people in an exodus out of Egypt, back up here. They're going to become my nation in the land of promise, just as I told Abraham they would. And so Moses has come down and he's confronted Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, most powerful nation in the world, and therefore to the ancient world, the most powerful gods in the world, the gods of Egypt. And so in confronting Pharaoh and Egypt and Egypt's gods, Moses, by God's doing, has done a number of miracles. So the Nile was turned into blood and gnats and frogs were multiplied. A fire from heaven had come down. And God says, I've saved one last sign. In each one of these, I'm opposing the powers of Egypt. I'm showing that I, Yahweh, I am that I am. I'm the real God. These others aren't. And so he said, I'm going to come through the land of Egypt and I'm going to strike down. I am going to kill every firstborn child from every family and every firstborn animal in the flock and the herd. This means all the land of Egypt is under God's judgment. Remember we said the firstborn represents all. So all the land of Egypt is under God's judgment. And he directly is going to bring about the death of every firstborn, saying, I am God and they're mine. They're not the gods of Egypt. They're not pharaohs. I'm in charge here. Now, the Jews were told this. This night, the angel of death is going to come through, and you've got to be prepared for it because God intends to pass over you and your dwellings. And so this is what you're going to do. On the 10th of this month, the month Nisan, And by the way, God says this month, it's in our spring, it's going to become the first month in your new calendar. Because God says, when I do this, your life has a new beginning, a totally new orientation, and your calendar is going to change. This time is going to become the first part of your new year. I think the Chinese New Year was recently, or is recently. Well, about this same time of year, a little later, this is going to become the first month of their calendar. On the 10th of this month, God says, every family goes out into the flock, and you're to to bring home a young, perfect, spotless lamb or goat on the 10th. You bring it home. And for four days, you can imagine if you're a little child, it'd be like bringing home a puppy. You get a pet for four days. So you feed that lamb... You take care of it, you water it, it's part of your family. It doesn't become just any lamb or any goat, it's your goat. It's your lamb now. And then on the 14th of that same month, four days later, at twilight, you take that pet that's dear to you and you slit its throat and you kill it. And you pour out its blood, you can imagine the heart's pumping and its blood is spurting out and you catch that blood in a basin. And you take some hyssop leaves and you use them like a paintbrush and you dip it in that blood and you paint it around the door of your house. And God says when that angel of death comes through, he's going to look down on those homes that have the blood smeared around those doorways 
And the angel of death, the angel of God's judgment, is going to pass over those homes. They won't be affected. Now you can imagine, if you're there this night of the Passover, if you lived near Egyptians who didn't take a lamb, didn't have blood around their door, you can imagine what happens that night into the next morning as families would wake up and find their eldest born dead. And when they'd go out in the morning in their flocks, there were going to be dead cattle and sheep and goats the next morning as well. And the cries that would ring out through the land of Egypt because they didn't seek shelter under the blood of the Lamb. God said, the whole land's judged by me. There's one way out, one way to be delivered. You slay that Lamb, your Lamb. You put it around that door and you hide in that home that night and the angel of death will pass over. Now, there was only one historical event when this happened, right? We're, we're not too clear on the date. It's around 1440, 41, 42, 43. But that happened one time. And the next day begins the exodus. Pharaoh wouldn't let him go before. Now he drives them out. Get out of here. So the next day is the exodus. But God said to the Jews every year after, he said, do this. Exodus 12, 14. This day shall be for you a memorial. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord or to Yahweh throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So historically, that one singular night where the angel of death went over and brought death to all who didn't seek salvation under the blood of the Lamb. But every year after that, at the same time, a memorial a calling to mind, a remembering what God did that night. Now, this memorial service changed a little bit over time. Uh, that initial Passover was quite simple, unleavened bread, bitter herbs, and the lamb or the goat. And the unleavened bread because you don't have time to let this bread rise because you're going to leave in a hurry. But also... We tend to say leaven represents sin, and, and that's true, but it also represents a connection to the past. Uh, unless you use sourdough bread, you don't make bread this way today. But, but for the ancients, they didn't get a pack of leaven. Uh, leaven's in the air all around us. And so they would leave a dough out, it would leaven itself through the air, and it would rise. But they would take a piece of that dough, and they would put it into their new piece of bread and the leaven in that new piece would spread throughout. So it wasn't just that leaven was sin, leaven was connected. That loaf of bread I'd eat today, it was organically directly connected to every loaf before it. It was connected to my life going back literally generations. So this was a reminder that your connection to Egypt in the past tonight is over. It's gone. You're starting with this new lump of bread that has no connection to the life that went before it. And as the Jews practiced this memorial every year, it became a little bit ref more refined, a little bit more ceremonial. And so when they did this year by year related to the leaven, they would go through the house and they would, very meticulously, they would look for any leaven in the house, they would clean it out before Passover. And it was a reminder, everything that went before today, it's over. It's gone. They called their memorial in the Jewish term a seder, which just means the order. 
So God commanded the Jews, one historical act of Passover, every year afterwards, you remember it. You call that to mind. And in the Seder, the eldest child was supposed to sit next to the father and would say, Father, why is this night different than all other nights? And the father would begin to tell the story of that original Passover when God delivered the Jews from Egypt and Pharaoh and the bitterness of their life in bondage as slaves in Egypt. Now you fast forward up to Jesus' time and life. And this is practiced every year, of course. So Jesus practices Passover as he's growing up. And this was one of the required uh, ceremonies that Jewish men and households would have to go to Jerusalem to do. So Jesus would have grown up celebrating Passover in Jerusalem. To our point today, what we tend to call the Last Supper was Jesus' last Passover meal with his disciples. And of course, he takes that historic memorial, Passover, remembering what God had done for the Jewish nation 1,400 years earlier, he modifies it, doesn't it? He changes it into a new kind of memorial. This is from Luke 22, and I'm going to sort of hyper read through verse 7 to 20. Jesus and his disciples, his public ministry years are over. He's going to be crucified the next day. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. By the way, there's some ambiguity. You're probably aware between the synoptic accounts and John's gospel about which day Jesus celebrated Passover versus the day he was slain. He celebrated Passover on the day the Passover lamb was slain. John's gospel talks about the day of preparation for Passover But it's generally assumed that the term Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were used interchangeably. This is one option to understand that the day he died would not have been the day the Passover lamb was usually sacrificed. There's a desire to tie Jesus' death with the exact moment that the Passover lamb was slain. That doesn't appear to be the the case that his last supper was the day of Passover that evening and he died the next day on Friday. So this is the day on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John into the city and says, go and prepare the Passover for us. There's going to be a man you'll meet. He's got a pitcher. He'll lead you to a room that's going to be fully furnished and ready for our use. Verse 15, he says to his disciples, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. This is the last time I do this with you, he says. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. And as that ceremonial remembrance of that first Passover occurred, they added cups of wine. There were four, and there would be prayers and blessings said over each one of these. And so this is one of those cups of blessing Jesus says here initially in verse 17. Verse 18, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Same thing. This is my last time to do this with you. He took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Just as you remembered the Passover lamb in Egypt, I'm changing gears here. I've used the Passover as my template, if you will, 
But now in the future, you take that unleavened bread and when you break it, you think of me. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. When he talks to the disciples about a new covenant, Jeremiah 31, God had promised the Jews, one day I'm going to make a new covenant with you. The old covenant was at Sinai. And under that old covenant, God had said, uh, these are my rules, this is what you do. If you obey, you're blessed. If you disobey, you're cursed. And God through Jeremiah says, when I make that new covenant, it's not going to be an external code written on stone tablets. It's going to be written on your heart. You're going to want to obey me. And I'm going to bless you before you obey this new covenant. So that old covenant, and if you think about it, Passover happens, the blood of that lamb is shed, and then at Sinai shortly after, God enters into a covenant with them. Here on the night of the Last Supper, when the Lord institutes the Lord's table, a new memorial, because a new covenant is going to be formed the next day when He's crucified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. So the original, the Passover, celebrated by the Jews, celebrated by Jesus, and then taken that last night with His disciples and modified for the church to practice right down to our day today. Just as the Jews had, so we do today as well. If you look in Acts 2, there's two verses there, verse 42 and 46, that show that the early church, this is just 50 days after Jesus' crucifixion, 50 days later at the Feast of Pentecost, when the Jews are back in the city of Jerusalem again, a Peter preaches, if you remember. The church is born because the Holy Spirit sweeps into that upper room they're praying in, fills them with the Spirit, and they proclaim Christ to those Jewish crowds. And the church is born, and thousands repent and believe. The church has formed this new institution, and so part of the life of the church looked like this. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers, to the breaking of bread. Verse 46, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Breaking bread there is a a term that means they were gathering communally as Christians, corporately, just like the night of the Last Supper, They were eating a meal together, and as they did, they broke the bread to remember Jesus' body broken. They drank the cup, the wine, to remember His blood shed on their behalf. That's what the early church was doing. So right away, you see them fulfilling Jesus' command. You remember when we said that worship is inherently tied to obedience? When we keep the Lord's table, we are obeying God, and that is worship. And He's given us this ceremony that He commands us to do as His followers. And it's meant to elicit in our memories, emotions, and connection to Jesus and what He's done. But the very act of participating at the Lord's table is worship. Because it was commanded and it's obedience for us to do so. Just as you see there in the early church. If you have a bulletin, you have an insert that has Lion and Lamb's position on this on the Lord's table... If you look through the New Testament to the question of how often should we celebrate the Lord's table, 
You know, what's the right answer to that? You actually see several different examples of how frequently the early church worshipped at the Lord's table. So, for instance, in Acts 2, we read that it was day by day. They're in each other's homes. They're eating together and they're breaking bread and drinking wine as Jesus commanded. Acts 2. If you go to Acts 20, on the first day of the week when they were gathered together to break bread. We know, so day by day. Here we've got on the first day of the week, weekly. And then if you move to Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, as often as you drink, remember me. As often as you eat, remember me. Different groups practice this more or less often. We do, we do the Lord's table the first Sunday of each month. We want to do it often enough that it's a reminder to us, this is a command by God to remember Him. And it's important, and we want to do it regularly. We don't want it to become so rote or so routine that we lose the sense of call that it is for us and the kind of affection that it's meant to draw out from us. We don't want it to just be a routine that we go through to go through. Jesus said in Luke twenty two fourteen again, with desire I've desired to share this meal with His disciples. And we want to bring that kind of desire to worshiping at the Lord's table. Often enough that we're obeying the command and our hearts are drawn up, not so often that it simply becomes a routine. We also connect remembering the Lord, worshiping at the Lord's table with potluck, This has always been intentional. We have potluck today on the first Sunday because we're intentionally joining a community meal of believers around the celebration, the act of worship, which is the Lord's table. The early church continued to put the ceremony, that act of worship, the Lord's table, with a meal until the second century. And apparently the Romans looked at these large gatherings of people eating together And you can appreciate this. They said, here's a legislative opportunity for us. This looks like a club. And you're not licensed as a club. So you may not gather together in this large setting and eat this meal, this communal meal together. And so in the 200s, this celebration was disconnected from the meal and became more of just the ceremony in the context of the meeting of the church But until the Romans forbid it, it was always tied to a meal, a large meal, a real meal that everyone participated in, just like that first Passover, just like Jesus' Last Supper. We have lots of kids in our church, and sometimes the question is raised, how old should a child be to participate in the Lord's table, in this act of worship? A couple words to that, and there's more on this in your insert. As we said last week, Ideally, after conversion, the first act of worship is baptism. That's the New Testament norm. Absolutely, there's nothing else apart from that. People believed, they were converted, and they got baptized. Ideally, we identify as Christians and part of the body of Christ before we come to the table. That baptism tells everyone else, we're one of you. We're part of the body of Christ. And then we come and worship at the table. That's one thing to consider. The other is this. 
Participating in the Lord's table requires a certain depth of spiritual awareness, consciousness. I say it for this reason. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that before Christians participated in worship at the Lord's table, they should examine themselves, judge themselves, and judge the body rightly. And so part of what this means is, if I'm not old enough or not discerning enough to examine my own life for sin before I participate in the Lord's Supper, I'm not old enough to participate. If I'm not old enough to understand that the way I've treated my siblings, my brothers and sisters at home, or my spiritual siblings, my brothers and sisters in Christ, in Christ's church, in His body, I'm not old enough to participate. The Lord's table requires spiritual discernment. We don't want to set our kids up to do something that they can't do with spiritual intelligence. It requires that. Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 11. Last on this, we have what we call an open table. This is the Lord's table. This isn't our table. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's His. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're personally free to worship at the Lord's table, you're free to do that here with us. And we hope you will. In fact, it's a great affirmation that no matter what our background is, where we come from, ethnically, skin color, religious background, when we are born again, we all become members equally of that one body of Christ. And so if I'm in another church and they're celebrating the Lord's table and I get to do that, that's just another declaration that we are one body in Christ. Now, I'm going to spend the, the balance of my time on admonishing us to be careful how we eat. Um, there are two instances in the Old Testament that are striking when you read them. And both of them are occasions on which priests worshiping Yahweh were struck dead on the spot because they weren't worshiping the way Yahweh told them to. This was a big deal. So Aaron, Moses' brother, lost two of his sons because God struck them dead. Nadab and Abihu. If you read the text, it just says they offered God strange fire. We don't know what that meant. Don't, don't know for sure. They didn't come to God the way God said they were to come. And he struck them dead. There's another tale, the tale of Uzzah. If you remember when David wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem. But the priests are dishonoring God because they're not carrying the Ark the way God told them to. It's on a wagon that the Philistines made. The Philistines didn't know any better. But the priests did. The ark was meant to be carried by poles inserted between the rings on the corners of the ark. And the ark is going to fall off the, the cart there and Uzzah puts his hand up and touches the ark and is struck dead on the spot. These were priests worshiping and God killed them because they weren't worshiping the way God said he meant to be worshipped. So one of the things to take away this morning... Um, we tend in our culture to disrespect God because we don't treat Him with the kind of fearful reverence and awe that we should. And we just don't get it. You know, we sort of stroll into church. 
it's my God on my terms, you know, I obey as I see fit. That's not the way God says he's to be worshipped. We come to God on his terms, his way. And the early church didn't do this, and it affected some grievously. And so there's a lot in the New Testament, specifically in 1 Corinthians, that are warnings to the church to worship at the Lord's table the way God said to. So, I love the words to the uh, English, Old English ceremony for marriage. And as I read this, this is, this is said at a wedding, but you think of the Lord's table. It is not by any to be enterprised or entered into, nor taken in hand unadvisedly, lightly, wantonly, to satisfy men's carnal lusts and appetites like brute beasts that have no understanding, but reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God. I love that. That's about entering into marriage, but how appropriate that is here for the Lord's Supper. This, this deep reflection and thoughtfulness, this is serious business, and I've got to bring this serious mindset to what I'm doing. Exactly the same. I'm going to breeze through some passages here from 1 Corinthians 5 just to make the points that Paul made about warning. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul told the church, you've got a guy that all of you know is practicing gross sexual immorality. And you think you're broad-minded and spiritual by tolerating his presence in the church. And Paul says, you got it backwards. you got to kick him out. And in part, Paul puts it this way. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Let us celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul told the church, you must practice what we call today church discipline. All of us sin. James says we sin a lot, all the time. It's not that we sin and we can't participate in the church or the worship. It's that when we know we're practicing sin against God, thoughtfully, repeatedly, regularly, and others know it, that cannot be tolerated in the church. And Paul says, in part it's because, back to that picture of leaven, if the church knowingly tolerates evil, that evil spreads just like leaven through the rest of the church. And God holds the church responsible for tolerating the leaven of known sin. Paul says you, you must put him out just like the early church, just like the Jews, were sacrificing with unleavened bread. Paul says, you're an unleavened loaf, and you have to live that way. So it's not up to you to leave someone in place. If they're practicing sin knowingly, and they've been confronted and they won't repent, you must put them out. Corinthians were also coming to the Lord's table one day, while on the other day they were going to pagan idols and temples and worshiping on other days. And Paul tells them again, you cannot do that. So in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, flee idolatry. The cup of blessing we bless at the Lord's table, it's a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread we break, it's a participation in the 
body of Christ. Paul's bottom line is this. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. He says, behind idols are demons. You can't go worship demons and then come and celebrate at the Lord's table. They are diametrically opposed to each other. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. We will otherwise provoke the Lord to jealousy. And by the way, this brings up Old Testament stories in which the Jews participated in idol worship and God struck and killed many of them. It was the same thing. In their day, they were still worshiping to pagan idols and then coming and celebrating at the Lord's table. Paul says you can't do it. For us, this might be, mean breaking free from things like practice or participation in astrology, other forms of religion. We can't practice a kind of spiritual syncretism and worship Jesus at the Lord's table. Paul says we've got to leave all of that behind when we come to worship. And last, uh, you've got to really be careful the way you treat your brothers and sisters, siblings or spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. In the Corinthian church, a place of great wealth, and by the way, a church much like the church today, uh, really carnal. They had a lot of stuff, but they didn't have a lot of spiritual maturity. As they got together to remember the Lord and his death, they had this great big meal. Some of them have plenty of money, so they've got plenty of food and plenty of wine. Some of them are gorging themselves on the food and getting drunk on the wine. While their poorer Christian brothers and sisters sitting next to them have nothing to eat or drink. Now I find this interesting. In this context, Paul doesn't call them out for being drunk. He calls them out for dissing their brothers and sisters in Christ. It was more important to God how they were treating each other than that one was drunk. You know, if I came in here south, you guys get on me rightly. Paul says, it's a greater sin in God's eyes that we disrespect and dishonor each other than that we're drunk at this celebration, this table, this feast. We need to take this pretty seriously. Which is to say, when we come to the Lord's table to worship Him, we have to do so as much as is in our power to do so. We're called to be at peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We can't come say to God, I love you, I worship you, I obey you while we're disrespecting and dishonoring other people that Jesus died for. You get the picture here. Jesus loves our brothers and sisters in Christ as much as He loves us. If I'm disrespecting, failing to love and honor and provide for in the ways I'm able, my brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm treating Jesus that way. So when we come to the table, we have to do so thoughtful about our relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ. If we don't, Paul says, towards the end of 1 Corinthians 11, he says God will judge us. So in their church, Paul says, some of you are sick physically, and some of you are asleep. And you know, that's a euphemism. You're dead. Some of you have died. Because just like Uzzah and Nadab and Abihu, you're coming before me in the totally wrong way. You're trying to worship at my table, but you're not honoring each other. You're not treating me with respect and deference that I require. So Paul said, some of you are sick and God has 
brought about the death of some of you prematurely. So we want to make sure that when we come and worship at the Lord's table, we're doing so circumspectly, reverently with the appropriate kind of fearful awe of God, but also thinking about our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We can't diss our siblings in the faith and then come tell Jesus how much we love him. He's, he's not playing that game. I'm going to breeze through. You know, I always find that I have more to say when I get here Sunday morning than I did before. So let me breeze through some other things, a little bit of theology. What is and what isn't on the menu at this table? This is a memorial meal. When we eat the bread, we drink the juice or the wine, we remember. That's what Luke said. You remember me. 1 Corinthians 11, twice. Do this in remembrance of me. It's a memorial meal. It's also a meal about fellowship. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that one loaf of bread represents there's one body of Christ, one communion. We all belong to each other. So we remember what Jesus did for us, just like the Jews remembered the Passover lamb. We remember God's deliverance. And we fellowship with each other. That's what's on the menu. Memorial and fellowship. What is not on the menu is Jesus. We don't eat Jesus. I just want to be clear on this. The the bread and the juice, they're symbols. They're not substance. Now I know, uh, not just Kathy and I, many of you have grown up in uh, high church backgrounds. And there's a form of theology called sacramentalism. And sacramentalism basically says this. Jesus is really in the elements or with the elements. And when you eat at the Lord's table, you get Jesus in a way you can't get Him otherwise. And you get grace. You get this special dose of grace. And as long as Jesus is in your body until He's digested and... I don't know, leave that to your imagination. Until He's gone, like Popeye with this can of spinach, you have spiritual power because you ate Jesus. So Roman Catholics, this is called transubstantiation. By the way, the Roman Catholic Mass is not. If you visit the Mass, don't don't take communion. It's not the Lord's table. It's a sacrifice. And Catholics teach, you wouldn't be welcome, by the way, at a Roman Catholic Mass to take communion if you're not a Roman Catholic and in good standing as such. Catholics teach that the Elements become, literally, not figuratively, not poetically, not metaphorically, that those elements become Jesus. Really. Trans, it's changed across. Substance, it's a different substance. But also Lutherans, Episcopalians, Church of England, some Presbyterian groups teach what's called consubstantiation. It's not that the substances have changed, but it's that Jesus is now somehow attached to them spiritually. So that when I worship at the Lord's table, I'm getting Jesus in a way I can't otherwise. Now, if you're a believer in Christ, you have all the favor you can possibly have in Christ. We swim in the sea of God's grace. We breathe in the air of God's grace. You can't get more grace. You can't get more favor. God can't rejoice over you any more than He already does in Christ. Now, I will say this. We may participate at the Lord's table 
And when we do, we may just gain some insight that we didn't have before. And we may feel our hearts drawn to God in a way they weren't before. And that's good. And that should accompany worship. You know, which one of us hasn't been in a worship time in the church gathered where we're singing the songs and we just feel it's transcendent. We, we experience God emotionally or spiritually in a way that we hadn't moments before. That can happen at the Lord's table too. But God says when we draw near to Him, He draws near to us. Psalms say God inhabits the praises of His people. He's with us and we may experience that sometime in a way that's different emotionally and spiritually. I'm all for that. But Jesus is not on the menu. We remember Jesus. And we obey Him in worship at this table. But He's not part of the menu. We worship as He commanded. The Lord has commanded us to worship at His table, and it's a good thing. You know, we're so short-sighted, and our memories are so short, to come back at least once a month. And by the way, you know, if you meet as a home group, what a great time to have the Lord's table. You don't have to just have the Lord's table here on a Sunday morning. You know, Acts 2 is clear. They were practicing the Lord's table house to house. You know, this is something you can do as home groups, gathered around, sharing a corporate meal and remembering the Lord in His death as a home group. It doesn't just have to be here. But just like the Jews had that annual memorial where they remembered God saved us when the whole land of Egypt was under judgment, He saved us. And that lamb that died in our place, that lamb saved us. And today when we remember the Lord in His death at the Lord's table, when we obey that command and worship in this way, we remember, guys, this whole world is under the judgment of God. Every person on this earth is under the judgment, the righteous judgment of God. And there's only one way to get out alive, and that's through the blood of the Lamb. And if we don't come under the blood of the Lamb for our deliverance, we're going to be like the Egyptians. There's going to be death in every house. When we remember and worship at the Lord's table, we're remembering, Jesus died for me. I'm safe under the blood of the Lamb. I've been called out of darkness and out of death. I've passed out of judgment, John 5.24, into life. The Lord's table reminds us of that. We've got a new Passover lamb in the Lord Himself. It's also a time to remember that it calls us to account. The guys who lead the Lord's table up here are, are great about reminding us before we participate to reflect we want to put the leaven away. We want to be introspective health in a healthy way. And we want to confess sin and forsake sin before we participate. If we're at odds with somebody else through sin, we need to make it right with them before we participate in the Lord's table. We want to come to this table, this act of worship, in a solemn way because it reflects the awful cost of our sin, Jesus' death in our place on the cross, that sacrifice. It's also a joyful time. And there's warnings here, and we need to take them seriously, but it's a joyful time too because we're really saved. And once saved, guys, you can never be lost. Judgment is passed over, and we've got this eternal future and hope with Jesus. And last, it's expectant. And for me, this is probably the biggest one. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, we do this until He comes. 
And Jesus says, you know, you're, this is the last time I do it until I do it again in the kingdom of God. So when we remember the Lord at the table, we do it only for this time. And each time we do, we remember Christ is coming back. And we're called to a feast in His presence at His table that's yet to come. And it's certain and it's sure. So that every time we do this, we're remembering not only what He did in the past and that deliverance, that once for all salvation He delivered to us, But we're also saying we know that this is only short term. And one day we're going to be home, we're going to be face to face, we're going to be eating at that table, worshiping Jesus face to face, not as a memory of someone in the past, but that person we're seeing in the moment right now. Father, thanks that you know our hearts, that we need reminders to cleanse sin from our lives, that we need reminders of the awful cost Jesus has borne for us. Lord, whether we're reading the account in Exodus or Luke 22, would you help us fearfully, reverently, joyfully, expectantly worship at your table as we think of the great salvation you've procured for us through Jesus, the wonderful family you've brought us into, and Lord, the certainty of our presence with you forever. Amen. From Psalm 63. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up mine hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips.